0: Hello, welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm thrilled to be able to share another conversation that I had with Cal Newport. Cal's been on the show before. He's probably best known for his book, Deep Work. We've talked about that in the past. I'll list that in the show notes for this episode. This week, he's actually here talking specifically about digital minimalism and how to choose a focused life in a noisy world. Now, before you get too far into assuming what this book is about, it is not just saying, hey, get off your screen. Stop using social media. It's not that simple. And I love being able to have a conversation with Cal about the nuance that is intentional digital technology use in the modern age. So if that interests you, you're in for a great conversation with Cal Newport. Well, this week, it is definitely my privilege to welcome back for the third time Cal Newport. Cal, welcome back. Eric, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. So I'm going to be honest and say that you're talking about digital minimalism, and yet you're a professor of computer science. Some people might say that there's an issue there. I don't really see it. You probably don't either. I think it's probably part of your job, right? I think so. I mean, who better
1: to, <laughs> to talk about the the interaction of technology and culture than someone who works with technology? I mean, we don't we don't want just a guy in the woods <laughs> to come out of his cabin with his typewritten page, like I have my new thoughts <laughs> on what we should do with technology. So I see it as part of my job. Uh, computer science professor, I do technology, and uh, I turn public facing work on. What's the impact of these technologies?
0: Well, and so you've been on the show before. We've talked about So Great They Can't Ignore You. We've talked about deep work, and we then bridged a little bit into this digital minimalism. Obviously, the whole digital minimalism thing, I mean, you were aware of it already, I'm sure. But part of why you went further down into that road, confirmation-wise, really, was that you had so many people coming up to you and saying, yeah, deep work is great, but like that's for my professional life. How am I supposed to focus in my personal life? right, and the the issues were different. Uh, I mean, on
1: the surface, it seemed similar. People who read deep work said, "I agree with you or I don't about the the impact of technology on my professional life. I've seen similar issues with technology in my personal life. It's having these unintended consequences which are not positive. And so on the surface, it seemed okay, it's a similar We have new technologies, it's changing the way we live and work. But the underlying forces really weren't the same. And the type of things I was talking about in deep work, which had a lot to do with maximizing your cognitive value in the marketplace and these type of business jargon type goals, didn't really seem to apply. And so the topics were similar. And so that's why I was hearing about it. But the diagnoses and the prescriptions were quite different. And that's what made me think, okay, I think I have to get into this and maybe write a completely different book.
0: Yeah. Well, and so you're using a word here that uh, people who've listened to this show should be familiar with, or if they've, or if they read, uh, you know, personal branding blogs out there, they're familiar with the word minimalism. I'd love for you to give what's your definition of the word minimalism, and then we'll kind of bring that round to the realm of digital as well. Well, it's
1: an ancient idea. I mean, you could go all the way back to. (laughs) Marcus Aurelius, and you can trace this path through Thoreau and then the voluntary simplicity movement in the mid-20th century into the online minimalism explosion, which which I was a close follower of in the first decade of the 21st century. So this is like Leo Babuda and Joshua Becker, Courtney Carver, and a little bit later, the minimalists, Josh and Ryan, who, who, I, who I know really well. So they sort of had this explosion. And then more recently, Mary Kondo, all of this is applying the same idea that has a through line throughout the history of human thought, which basically says less is more. Or in a little bit more detail, if you focus your energy on a small number of things that are very valuable, that's almost certainly going to make you better off than if you instead try to stretch or scatter that energy over many, many things that each offer you a little bit of value. Focus gives you more total return than trying to grab every last scrap of value. And this applies... Essentially, in all aspects of human life, and so as you as you're noting, I'm just taking this ancient idea and saying, well, this has worked in so many places. Maybe
0: we should give it a try in our digital personal lives. And you're kind of unintentionally, or maybe intentionally, uh, contrasting already in your statements there about minimalism, the opposite maximalism, right? Which has been around as the foil to minimalism again
1: for <laughs> millennia. Uh, it's very popular now, though, uh, particularly in the the West, and particularly in technology. This idea that if something could bring you some value and you are not engaging with it, it's as if you're having that value taken from you, That's the maximalist mindset. You don't want to miss out on anything that could possibly be valuable or inconvenient because it's like someone is taking that away from you and that's negative. We don't want to lose things. And so the maximalist is always out there worried. They're missing out on something that one day might be useful. So in the context of let's say your physical possessions, when you push maximalism to an extreme, you get hoarders. You know their house is completely full to the ceiling with all this junk, and it, of course, everything in their house. They'd say, "Well, you know, I need this birdhouse, right? You never know, right? Like, what if, what if I, I plant the tree and I need it? I need this newspaper from the 1980s because you know that was an important year for me, and I want to remember." You know, they have a reason; there's some value, but the cost of having their house completely cluttered is way worse. And so, it's the same thing in people's uh, digital lives as well. Well, you never know; I might get a funny meme if I'm on this service. My cousin is on this one. And that's how I could see the baby pictures. This could be convenient. If one day uh, I'm in a situation where I need to, whatever, (laughs) I don't even know what these apps do, but I need to play slice fruit with my finger or whatever it is. I mean, you know, that's maximalism. If it has some value, if it has some benefit, you have to try to get it or you're missing out.
0: Yeah. And so people who are familiar with the term opportunity cost, obviously see the flaw in maximalism, I hope at least they see it, that that's trying to say yes in every instance, which is impossible because you can't say yes to everything. You have to say no to you have to say yes to one thing because then you're automatically saying no to everything else at that same time.
1: Right. So this is the the mathematical underpinning of minimalism, Is it says, uh, this is sort of my computer scientist take on it. Obviously, I don't think Marcus Aurelius was, was <laughs> doing these exponential distributions or power law distributions. But uh, if you bear with me, I mean, imagine that we have a uh, graph or a chart, and then for every activity, you're you're graphing how much value you get from it. Well. There's huge differences, huge discrepancies. So the things that give you the most value, like serious connection with a close friend or family member where you're sitting there spending time with a or a skilled hobby or, or working on a skill that's important to your professional life, you get really high value. That bar is really high. And then you have lots of other things like uh, seeing something funny on Twitter where the bar is it's up. It's not zero, but it's much lower. So mathematically speaking, if you have a limited amount of time to dedicate towards activities... And you want to maximize the reward you get. The strategy is obvious. You want to put as much of that time as possible into the things that have these huge rewards. And so this is a mathematical model of opportunity cost because when you instead spend an hour trying to get, let's say, some of these small reward activities like looking for the funny thing on Twitter or, or, you know, saying happy birthday to the old roommate or something like this, that's time that you could have been getting a much higher reward. And because there's such a discrepancy between the things that matter most and everything else, you can end up much worse off. And so that's sort of the mathematics of minimalism is that things that are really, really valuable make you really, really happy and satisfied when you put time into them. And so to steal time away from those things is something we should be very cautious about.
0: So I want to come back to what digital minimalism is as a uh, philosophy of technology use uh, in a moment. But I want to hone in, Real quick on the word technology, because I think a lot of people automatically assume, you know, in their minds, the word technology, then there's an equal sign and then the word digital. But technology isn't inherently digital. We had a whole lot of technology prior to the digital age. Right. Technology is a it's a very broad concept.
1: It's also very hard to define. I've been reading a lot of these sort of mid-20th century big thinkers who worked in the philosophy of technology. So they were trying to understand what is technology, how do we interact with it. And there is no one definition, and it is very broad. But the one thing that's very clear from looking at these big thinkers is that technology can have massive impacts on culture. This is true historically, well before we're talking about digital, even well before that we're talking about electronics. And so we have this this through line through history where when we take our eye off the ball and don't critically engage, what is this tech doing to us? How do we want to integrate it? Where do we want to be wary? When we don't do that, it tends to have all these unintended consequences. And so what we're seeing now with this very particular sliver of technology, the recent innovations – I call them new technologies in the book, but basically the innovations of the the wireless and internet age – What we're looking at with these recent innovations, their unintended consequences, is a story that we've seen repeated over and over again, that when you take your eye off the ball of critically engaging new innovation, you're often surprised,
0: and the surprise is sometimes in a dismayed format when you see what happens. So now that we've (laughs) kind of honed in and and laid a whole bunch of groundwork context-wise, we can finally get into digital minimalism. So we're talking specifically about this new technology that you're referencing, and then we kind of then diagram it with minimalism, and that's where we're gonna spend the rest of the time in that center section there. So this philosophy, this approach to technology use. And and by the way, you're not the first person to be talking about this, but you picked up on this upswell. Why do you think that we've had, you know, that recent upswell of attention to this, this interest, this area?
1: Well, the Upswell is really about two years old. I mean, I've been been reading and writing and speaking on these issues for a long time, but it's really about two years ago where I noticed that people really started to take me seriously, (laughs) as opposed to thinking that I was just eccentric for not having uh, a social media account. So there's a change that started about two years ago. I think there's two reasons behind it. One, the attention economy platforms in particular, so like the major social media companies in particular, got too good at attracting our attention. You know, it, was, it was just too hard for them to resist once they figured out, hey, when you have apps on a phone and you engineer them properly, you could engender compulsive use. And compulsive use gives us more money. It's really hard for them to pull themselves back because more compulsive use is more money. And they have a fiduciary responsibility to their public shareholders to increase revenue, but they got too good at it. So that's part of it. So people said, I can't ignore this anymore. I, I really can't ignore uh, how much I am looking at these screens. And I think more generally, people began to to have this sense that their autonomy was being degraded. And I think that's important because, you know, often when I used to do debates on this topic, people like to go back to utility as the question. Mm. Facebook is useful. Let me show you a use I have for Facebook. Uh, Instagram is interesting, right? Here's what I do it for. You say it, I shouldn't do this, right? They really want to make this argument be uh, conducted on the grounds of utility, but that's not what's frustrating people. It's autonomy. It's the fact that they're using these things, you know, too much. More they know is healthy. More they know is useful to the exclusion of things that they know is more important. They're starting to feel as these companies got so good at attracting their attention that there is a impossible to ignore degradation in the quality of their life. And so, this is what's going on out there. That's why I think people are, are starting to care. It's like, this is not harmless. The exuberance is over. That exuberant period where all these things were fresh and new, and it was just cool, this idea, which I agree, that you could have a powerful computer in your hand with ubiquitous wireless internet connection. I mean, come on, that's a technological miracle. Yeah. But as that exuberance wore off, people are saying, wait a second, this is making my life worse. I need something that's a little bit more strong, has a little bit more teeth than simply saying, Hey,
0: I should probably use my phone less. See, and I can remember Facebook, for example, let's, you know, pick on them for a minute. I remember that that it existed for a while before I was on it. Then I got on it, and then it existed in one form for a, a certain duration of time. It morphed over time. It wasn't just about I mean, th- there was a higher value in it, in its earlier days, and then gradually as it became more engineered to be more addicting is when we slowly started to realize, oh, this is not, this is not good. Even I'm going to throw this out there. By the way, we're talking digital. So not to pick on social media specifically, but think about this. What about Netflix and the automatically jumping to the next episode without you having, I mean, you still have a choice, but boy, did they make it hard to choose to turn it off. You know, I wasn't thinking about streaming media, for example,
1: when, when I was first working on this book and when I ran this experiment where a lot of my readers went through a digital declutter, but they got in touch with me when I sent out the initial rules when I was doing this experiment. I said, okay, here's the technologies I want you to take a break from. And I ran uh, over 1,600 people through this sort of month without technology and helped them clean out their proverbial closet. And you know, this was part of the, the research for the book. But the initial list I had of here's what I mean by technologies in your personal life didn't include streaming media, and didn't include video games. It just wasn't on my radar. I mean, yeah. I'm the am the father of three young kids. I don't I don't have time. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the click watch next episode, right? I mean, I I just where would that time be? But my readers came back and says that has to be on the list, and video games have to be on the list, uh, because you don't understand that the 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 amount of time this is taken away for things that are more important. So you're right on that. And so now I, I definitely add those to the list of digital. And this was something I was educated on that this has taken away people's time, probably even more for some people, you know, than social media or other things happening on their phone.
0: Yeah. See, and that's the thing is I want to make sure I call out that it's like, you're not, you know, Cal's not just saying social media is bad. Like it's, it's the constant stimulus since we have this digital glowing screen in our pocket at all times, allows us to jump into and we don't have any time for our own thoughts anymore. Or at least we, we act like we don't because we've, we've uh, pushed all that time out of our lives.
1: Right. And I, the reason I, I sometimes pick on social media is that they helped lead this transformation, but they're, they're not the only element of it. But this is a point that's worth emphasizing. We have become used to this idea that our phones are a constant companion, That we, we look at them all the time, but we look at our, our phones hundreds of times a day. We think that this is just fundamental to this technology, right? You invent the smartphone, you invent wireless internet everywhere in the world. The, the, the result of that is, of course, we're going to look at our phones all the time. But that actually is, uh, not a true storyline. This notion that we need to look at our phones all the time was not a sort of emergent phenomenon. It wasn't just our natural reaction to this technology. It's not how we used to use these phones, let's say, during the first three to five years that the iPhone existed. What really happened to shift this is that Facebook in particular led this charge to we have to re-engineer people's experiences with their phones if we're going to get our revenue numbers where they have to be for our IPO to succeed. And that's when Facebook led the charge of doing this overhaul Of their service. When they moved to mobile being their primary target, they added in and emphasized all of these social approval indicators like likes and comments and tags and photos that come streaming at you through the app intermittently so that every time you click on the app button on your phone, you might see a few more of these indicators trickling in or you might see none or you might see a big group of these indicators coming in. This was not what social media was about before. When the Facebook.com launched, there was no like button. I mean, you posted information about yourself Your friends posted information about themselves. You would occasionally go on and see what they were up to, which was a fine service and was fun, but no one really needed to use it more than like an hour or two a week, which is a disaster if you're trying to get 100 times return for your investors. And so this world we live in today where we constantly look at our phones, that was largely contrived by Facebook and then a lot of other people following their lead to get revenue numbers up. And so I make that point to say, you could get a lot of value out of this technology Without having to have this model of constant companionship, that's actually not at all fundamental. It's actually quite arbitrary. a lot of other companies jumped on this bandwagon and engineered their apps and services in the same way because it makes a lot of money. But I keep hammering home that point when I've been on the road recently, is the constant companion model of smartphone use is not fundamental to this technology. It's not fundamental to extracting value from this technology. It's not natural. It's not emergent. It's essentially a business model that has been very successful for a small number of companies.
0: Well, and even over the course of the past year, we've seen these social media companies get wise to the, uh uh-oh, people are, you know, quote-unquote, on to us. We better start rolling things out like digital wellness pieces to our app that show you, you know, how long you've been on there. See, we care about you as a person and how much time you're spending on us. We want your time spent on our app to be time well spent. But all of that comes across to me as like the cigarette companies saying, oh, our our cigarette is now low tar. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, an extra log filter. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 you don't rely on the fast food manufacturers to to give the diet advice. Yeah, it's the same idea. But even that digital wellness, there's these interesting Machiavellian games going on because who has the the most powerful digital wellness tools right now? Well, Apple is taking the lead on that. Uh, so why is Apple doing that? Well, in part because of pressure, you know, from activist investors and from the public, but also think about it. Apple can put in these features that people like, like screen time. Uh, Android can't really embrace it nearly as strong because the whole pitch of Android is for attention economy companies need to have more control of the operating system so that they can monetize people's attention. I mean, Android was invented by Google because they realized they're going to make a lot of money off of people's attention on mobile devices. And so they would like to control the platform for this. So Android can't be quite so aggressive. So now, Apple is getting a little bit of an advantage in the marketplace. They're not directly tied to the attention economy, so they can start to siphon away Android users by saying, look, we have these features, and the Android phones can't have them nearly as strong. So, so even the things that are for our own good have these interesting Machiavellian undercurrents about these companies, these, uh, these top five companies angling for position.
0: Dot com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Digging into, for example, well, Apple software or even Android software for that matter, but people would think, well, okay, I, I think then the fix for me is to start figuring out hacks. Like I can get all the tips out there about turning off my notifications or deciding only certain people are allowed to get a notification when they call or text or whatever specific app we're talking about. And there is a place for some of that, but that's treating symptoms. That's not treating the actual problem. And your principles of digital minimalism as a philosophy, as a as an approach, is actually much more the way to go. Right, that's what I
1: observed, is that uh, tips and hacks by themselves aren't solving the problem. They could be part of a much more thought-through solution, but by themselves uh, aren't going to solve the problem. We saw this in health and fitness. We had you know rising issues with obesity, diabetes, etc. in the 20th century once we got these highly processed foods that our bodies weren't used to. We noticed that simple diet tips did it work, just telling people to eat better or to eat less or to move more. Did it make people healthier? Putting up a food pyramid in the school nurse's office, surprisingly, did not push back you know, the tides <laughs> of obesity. So think what did work. Who's the healthiest people you know? Who who are the people you know that are annoyingly healthy? Almost well, well, certainly they have some sort of philosophy that they really believe in that's based on their values, like veganism or paleo or the CrossFit fanatics, something like this, but some sort of philosophy they believe in that gives them a consistent approach to these issues. And so that's what digital minimalism is for the tech world. The tips of load aren't going to do it, you need digital veganism or digital paleo or whatever yeah. you want to call it, but you need a philosophy that you can buy into and believe it and really think it's going to make your life better. I think that's the only way that you're going to resist
0: the powerful forces behind these tools. So let's dig into what these principles are, because even though you're proposing these principles, the way that these principles are going to filter out into individual lives is going to be contextual and you know very individualistic.
1: Right. So, well, I mean, let let me just start by giving the the foundational idea behind what happens when minimalism uh, intersects with digital. So, the basic idea to be a digital minimalist is that you're going to clean the slate of these technologies in your personal life. Just clean out the whole proverbial closet. Right. All the clothing comes out. The closet is empty, and then you rebuild it from scratch. But this time, you do it much more intentionally. Say, I'm only going to add a tool back into my life if I have a very strong rationale for how this is going to help something I really care about. And not only that, even if it passes that test, I'm also going to have some pretty strict rules about when and how I use it to make sure that I'm optimizing the ROI, that I'm getting as many benefits as possible while avoiding as many costs as possible. So that's where the hacks slip back into digital minimalism, but they're being used for a very particular reason. So it's just like what Marie Kondo says, take everything out of your closet and only add back into things that you really like, Digital minimalism says do the same thing to your smartphone and your desktop, right? Get rid of all of these things you haphazardly downloaded or just signed up for, and then start from scratch, but this time be much more intentional. What do you really need to use and how are you going to use it? So you're still going to get great benefit out of tech. Minimalists get huge benefits out of tech, but they use a lot less than most people, um, and they're looking at their screens a lot less than most people, and so their enjoyment of their life is a lot better.
0: So it's bringing intention back to how you interact with these digital tools. And they're using it almost because of the focus. It's this laser like focus. So, again, you know, diffusion of light can light up a room, and that's great, but a laser can like cut through things.
1: Yeah. Like a great example is I I worked with several different visual artists when I was researching the book, and they told me Instagram is key, right? If you do creative visual art, you have to have a constant stream of input. You have to see a lot of creative work. This is why historically artists would congregate among a small number of cities that had a large art community so that they could constantly expose themselves to the work of other people. There's no way to make creative leaps without exposing yourself to other people's creative output. And so Instagram has democratized a lot of this geographically. It means you can expose yourself to other artists' work because artists publish their work on Instagram without having to actually live in you know, Greenwich Village or something and actually be near the gallery. So that's great. But Because they're digital minimalists, or at least the ones I worked with were minimalists, they wouldn't just let that be an excuse to say, yeah, I have Instagram on my phone, and I just look at it an hour a day. They're very specific, laser-like focused. They say, here's what I'm going to do. For example, I'm going to call down the people I follow on Instagram to maybe five to 10 artists whose work really inspires me. I'm going to take it off my phone. There's no reason for it to be on my phone. That's just pulling my time and attention away. It's probably going to make me worse at my art. I'll be too distracted. It's going to be just on my desktop computer. I'm going to have a schedule. It turns out Sunday morning, if I go on Sunday morning, it takes me about 30 minutes to look at everything new that these 10 artists have posted. And then they step back and say, look at this. I'm getting a huge value out of Instagram on something I really care about. And in return, it's getting very little from me. It's 30 minutes of time once a week. And so they have taken that cost-to-benefit ratio, and they have shifted it so dramatically uh, in their advantage. So repeat that over lots of different tools in your life, and it's a completely different relationship. These things become tools that give you huge value and extract very little cost in return. They help you live a really good life as opposed to being what you use to escape the fact that you're not caring about that at all.
0: Well, and you wouldn't get to that point of being able to pare it down to the absolute purest amount that you need to get actual value out of it without it taking much more from you than uh, it should require to get that value. Uh, if you didn't do that declutter, and, and again, I want to reiterate here, be very careful that you're saying declutter, digital declutter for 30 days, not a detox, because a detox inherently kind of implies that you're going to retox. Yeah,
1: or at least the digital world, which to me is really weird. The, in the digital world, we took this term detox from the substance abuse community and then we completely corrupted it. So in, in the substance abuse community, when you go to detox, let's say, from a drug addiction, the idea is not that, OK, you're going to get this nice break from this drug. And then when you're done, you could go back to using the drug. That would be crazy, right? In the substance abuse world, the detox is the first step towards completely rebuilding a new life without the substance that you were trying to get away from. Yet in the digital world, we use this term just to be take a break, which doesn't make sense to me, right? I mean, the whole idea of a detox is you have a pr- there's a problem. There's something that's, that's uh, hurting the quality of your life. Uh, the detox will eliminate the compulsive use, but then you have to build a new life that doesn't have it in there at all. So I do use the, the term declutter. And the basic idea here, so this is kind of the core, my core suggestion for how to become a, a digital minimalist, is you take 30 days. And during those 30 days, You really step away from any of the optional technologies you can in your personal life. And if there's things that overlap work or you can't quite step away from, you put some just pretty tight rules around how and when you use it so that it can't just be a a constant background hub in your life. Part of the purpose of the 30 days is sure there will be a detox experience at first in the sense that it does help reduce your compulsive urge to look at screens. And that is important. Uh, It's going to be hard to rebuild your digital life if you still feel a compulsive urge to use what was in the old life. So that's important. But the other reason why I say 30 days is it gives you enough time to actually reflect and answer the key questions about what am I all about? What do I care about? What do I want to spend my time on, especially outside of work? What's important to me? What are my values? To experiment with activities that we used to do before we had ubiquitous access to screens, so that when you get to the end of the 30 days and you say, what am I letting in and why, you have a foundation on which to actually make uh, those answers, those questions, right? Because if you're answering those questions of, I'm letting this back in because it really helps this, but I'm not letting this back in because it doesn't really help something I care about. If you're not really convinced that these are the things that are reported to you, your answers aren't going to stick. And so, I pitch this declutter, and I do call it a declutter instead of a detox because it's like you're cleaning everything out of your house essentially for good, and you're getting back in touch with what matters to you. And then when it's all over, you can then carefully start repopulating the proverbial shelves, but you're able to do so now from a really grounded perspective. You know what you're about, and you're putting these things to work for making your life better, which to me is self-evident. What, how else would you want to use these tools except for to make you know a good life even better, That seems like self-evidently the right thing to do. So the surprising thing to me is that we've gotten so far away from that and that we instead often use these tools as a bit of an escape or a crutch. We don't have to deal with what we want to do with our life, what's important, what's not, what's the right way to use our time. We don't have to deal with that if we could instead just click watch next episode or swipe down one more
0: swipe on the endless scroll of Twitter. What are some of the findings that you had relayed back to you from all these people who were doing this uh, digital declutter for 30 days? Well, a few things that, that came back to me from these reports that caught my attention.
1: One, uh, people hadn't realized the degree to, to which they were using these screens. I mean, for, for a lot of people, it was almost scary at first when they started this declutter where they say, wow, I have all this time and, and, and I don't know what to do with it. That's scary, but it's also really uh, illustrative of how much of our day that we don't realize we're filling with the very low-quality activity of staring at a screed. And so when you take those away, you see that you actually, A, have a lot of swaths of time with which you could do meaningful activities, uh, but B, we don't know what those meaningful activities are anymore. So that's the second big observation I learned from these experiments is that people were surprised to to realize the degree to which the screed had pushed out of their life other types of activities. And if they're a little bit older, uh, they would say activities that they used to enjoy. Mm. Right. And they had it real, they didn't decide to do this. It just sort of creaked, right? It's a little bit easier to pull out the phone than to invite someone over to lunch. It's a little bit easier to look at the laptop than it is to pay attention to the person in front of you or to go out to the woodshed and work on, you know, the Ron Swanson style canoe you're building or whatever <laughs> it is, right? It's always a little bit easier than any of those things and so it has a way of just pushing those things out uh, a lot of people realized that they were using these as an escape so they were anxious or there was something hard happening in their life or they were just feeling generally uh, existentially angsty, especially young people like what am i doing sort of quarter life crisis type situation and they were getting away from these bad feelings by just looking at the screen because the screen could has algorithms. They know what you're interested in. They could show you something that's funny or something that'll make you a little bit emotional. Maybe they'll give you something to get mad about. Nothing distracts you better than being mad about what someone else is doing. But that's also pretty dangerous, right? Because, I mean, this is the foundation of of all sorts of types of addictions is that when you start using something as an escape from something you don't want to face – that's when it shifts into sort of dangerous territory. So that was really interesting. Uh, and, and the third thing I noticed is that people were often really pleased to rediscover how much value they got out of more quality activities, the type of analog things that we used to do all the time, the feel-our-leisure time. Uh, we used to think of them as just trivial, like I go to the library and get books, or I, you know, I'm working on a project, or I'm, I'm going to a community group, or these things just seem small. When they got back to them, they had this realization of, wow, this feels different than chiming in on a Twitter thread or putting a comment under someone's Instagram post. Like there's, there's something that's more deeply human. There's something more fulfilling into it. Then there's this excitement to, to rediscover that this sort
0: of analog cure is as powerful as it turns out to be. And this is where it starts to relate back to – I mean, all of it relates back to deep work to me, the focus, the being able to intensely focus and get quality work done. The issue here is is if you're constantly trying to achieve getting into the zone of doing deep work, but you are then also constantly stimulated, your brain is never having a rest, uh, even if it's – partially just, you know, there's different tiers. It's like, okay, I'm alone and I'm super focused in doing deep work. And actually, I remember in our last conversation, we talked about doing deep work as a team. So I want to make sure people, I'll I'll link that up in the show notes for the last episode. That is possible. You're not saying deep work's a solitary thing, but analog leisure, analog, quality analog leisure, I should say, or analog social media are things where you're interacting with people, but not in a digital way. You're doing face-to-face or as much face-to-face as possible, or even writing a letter. Um, For example, I'm having lunch today with some close friends here in town, and I've known them since college. And the thing is, is we did not grow up with this technology, but we've adopted it, but we've also paired it back. We planned that lunch briefly over text, and then we stopped stopped texting and then knew, okay, we're going to meet up at that certain time, and we're going to sit down and have a nice conversation and lunch. point that I'm getting at here, though, is if we're constantly on and never unstimulated and let allowed to uh, have a brain at rest or at least a brain where our brains never fully <laughs> stop thinking even when we're by ourselves and no one else is around our brain is still like processing but it's a different kind of processing right and so
1: in deep work i had talked about this research that said if you're constantly stimulated it's going to have an impact on your ability to focus and and so that's kind of where i left it in deep work is that if after work You're constantly getting stimuli from your phone. When you get to work and say, I'm going to lock in and concentrate, you're going to have a hard time doing it. Your Mm -hmm. your brain's going to be too scattered. What I found when I was researching this new book is that there's other effects as well. So if you don't get solitude, for example, if you don't get just time alone with your own thoughts or you don't have stimuli, and if you miss these type of activities you mentioned that were evolved to crave, namely real-world analog interaction with other humans and physical leisure activity or physical activities where essentially uh, you can see your will, it's in the world. So this thing is broken, I use my hands, this thing is fixed. Okay, it turns out a big part of our species success is that we could do that, we could have a thought, and then we can make that thought and in the world by manipulating the world with our hands. Our brain really needs that it gets weirded out when all it's doing is looking at a computer screen. It doesn't think about like a clean compile of computer code or, or a, a funny tweet. It doesn't think about that as the same way that it thinks about, I made a spear. And so we need that. So when, when you're doing real world activity, real world interaction and solitude, these are three things that we absolutely need uh, through evolution. Just the human species needs these three things in, in good proportions. When you replace that all with just looking at a screen it constant stimuli, in addition to losing your ability to focus, you get anxious. And so we have this background hub of anxiety through our whole culture that we're just becoming used to and just being like, I guess we're an anxious culture. It's actually because our brain's not getting what it needs. It'd be like if we're all walking around tired, like I guess, you know, we just live in a tired culture that someone said, wait a second, we're not sleeping. You could say, oh, I guess that's the problem. We need sleep. That would stop us from being tired. Well, getting these real world activities, solitude. Conversation in, in the real world with real people and doing physical activities. If you take those away, the brain gets really anxious, it gets really unhappy, it gets really jumpy, it gets uh, it gets touchy. And so there's a lot more. In other words, there's a lot more consequences to this lifestyle than just the professional consequences, which themselves are very huge. That's why I talk about deep work. But in this book, I realize that it goes much deeper. It has to come down to sort of our mental health in general is at stake when we let the screen push all of these other more
0: fundamentally human activities off to the side. I couldn't help but think of my brain suffocating and and having a panic attack and grabbing you know the paper bag to breathe into.
1: I mean that's that's essentially like our whole culture is is in that state right now yeah. and we don't even realize it. That uh, it's it's like we know why. It's like if we were all coughing and we all had a cigarette in our hand, and we could have put two <laughs> and two together. Like uh, what is it? You know, politics these days make us cough so much, right? Like I don't know, maybe it's the cigarettes that we're constantly smoking. It's like we're just starting to put. These pieces together, right? Oh, it's not just gifts handed down for the nerd gods. There's consequences to radically changing the way we live to be different than it ever has been before in the history of human civilization.
0: Here's the other thing is that I want to make sure we touch on this, the professionalism of it that, you know, for me, for example, I use social media as part of my day job, and I don't have a choice about it. So I then need to treat it, professionally. And I need to treat it like I would treat email where I'm not on it all day. It's not open all day. I have certain windows of time. And again, email is something that I know you have thoughts on, but we're not going to go there. That's for next time you come back. Uh, <laughs> but I, I really liked, I, I know I heard you say this, something about there's a correlation between athletes tweeting and then the outcome of the games they had the next day. Yeah. They, you know what they did is they these researchers looked
1: at Twitter timelines and then, uh, for NBA players and then their perform it statistically the next day in, in their NBA games. Right? It's a really clever type of experiment. And there's a clear impact. Like athletes who were tweeted a lot the day before uh, the game statistically performed worse than the days in which they weren't tweeted a lot before the game. And actually, I've been in touch with front offices of multiple different professional sports. Yeah, that's definitely – digital minimalism is definitely on people's minds in the professional sports world because the stakes are so high – And a slight mental edge when you're at the superstar level could really be the difference between a victory or not a victory. I mean, it's worth a lot of money. And so that's definitely one of the areas uh, where we're starting to see people wonder uh, or at least get a little bit more suspicious about what's the impact of these things.
0: And there's a lot of money on the line in the, in that case. So that's why it's one of those more obvious things to call attention to. So <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, also, funnily, uh, another place where there's a lot on the line is free solo climbing, where you're climbing a large mountain without any rope. So Alex Hardold is, of course, the, the most famous example of this. There's a, a big uh, documentary out about him. I think you could access it on Netflix now. Uh, but he famously, before he does his major climbs, does a whole month. With no social media and essentially no screens, because, again, his stakes are high as well. If his mind gets a little bit distracted, there's this downside that he dies. So, <laughs> so he takes it very seriously. So anyways, it's interesting, right? When you see these places where uh, the stakes are really high, this is the first places where we see people actually start to get serious about the cognitive
0: impact of these devices because they do have to care. Man. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up here. This is a good place to stop and just say, look, this is a thing. The awareness is growing. You can't ignore it unless you're one of the people who is literally not using devices. But I, even if you're not a smartphone user, a heavy smartphone user or a heavy social media user, I know we picked on those things specifically. But again, like I called out Netflix, like, hey, it's it's still digital and it's still I, I'm glad the people that uh, were doing the digital de- de- declutter brought that up to you. This is a great book. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's definitely something. Um, I, I'm glad that you're doing it now because it's ahead of the curve. We have to get ahead of this. We have to not just passively accept the status quo when it comes to this digital technology. Right. I mean, these these technologies are like food. So you can't ignore it. <laughs>
1: You'll be in trouble if you try to avoid it altogether. But on the other hand, if you don't think about it at all, and just say, whatever, I just eat whatever, don't think about it, you also are probably going to have trouble. And I think that's the right way to think about this new tech. You can't run away from it all. In fact, you wouldn't want to, because if deployed properly, it could give you these huge boosts to the quality of your life. But you can't also close your eyes to how you use it, right? We have to do this thought work of, what am I all about? Okay, now let me think how to use these tools instrumentally to help these values. You know, We've discovered if we ignore it, things get worse. So I I hope you're right. I hope the time is finally arriving. I'm certainly sensing that where people are ready to actually put in this effort. And all I can say is that I strongly encourage it. The thousands of minimalists that I've worked with that have 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 done this process, their lives are a lot better. Right. This really is not about this tech is bad or, or, you know, as much as I like beating up on the social media (laughs) companies, it's not just about beating up on the social media companies. It's about if you do this, your life will be much better. And I think that should hopefully be sufficient
0: inspiration for anyone right now who's feeling a little bit unsatisfied about their relationship with these screens. So perfect timing. The book is out now. So I will link that up in the show notes. And Cal, it's been great talking with you as usual. Can't wait to have you come back again soon. And uh, thanks for being here.
1: Great. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I'm I'm working on a book on email. So I'll be back soon. So we can start. We (laughs) we could pick
0: on that for a while. I think we'll have
1: fun. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Looking forward to it. And that wraps up another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you so much again to Cal Newport for joining me on this episode. I always love talking with Cal. I'm really looking forward to his next book if you caught any kind of indication of where that's going. I'm curious, though, where you stand on digital minimalism. Did we intrigue you? Did we interest you in this approach? I know that I personally have done a 30-day detox. Now, I didn't do a decluttering like we talked about, and there's a difference between that, but I did take away 30 days straight of social media years ago, really enjoyed it, really, it really helped me out. In fact, I know I talked about that on a previous episode years ago also. So this is very timely, this conversation. I think it's, it's very important. Again, if you're a person like me who works In the realm of social media, literally, or social media is an integral part of your career tasks. I think you really owe it to yourself to grab Cal's book and go through it and do a digital declutter as well as come out the other end and do a contemplative as well as action-oriented philosophy, strategy for your digital life. You really need to do that. I, I, I can't stress that enough. Treating your social media in your professional life like a professional is necessary. So anyway, I hope you got a lot out of this. I hope it made you think. I hope it made you want to act. And if it did, and you thought of somebody else who needs to hear this conversation, I'd love for you to share it. Head on over to the show notes for this episode, which you can find at beyondthetodolist.com slash 260. There you will find the ability to click the share button and send this episode out to anybody you know needs to hear it. I can think of a few people that I know need to hear it, including myself, to be honest. I'm going to listen back through. If you're not subscribed to the show, go ahead and click the subscribe button. I've got lots of great episodes coming up soon. And again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next episode.